0: And learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: In a world that can be challenging and at times unpredictable, it's hard to find moments to focus on what you need. Join Stephanie James on The Spark as she guides you to use your inner flame to ignite your best life. As a best-selling author, psychotherapist, transformational life coach, and international show host, Stephanie is dedicated to helping you create a life that takes you, your goals, and your passions to the next level, so you can live a life that is fully lit up and fully alive. She believes that your life is meant to be a beautiful expression of the things that light you up, that by living your dreams, you give permission to others to do the same. Are you ready to feel alive and inspired to fuel your dreams and put a fire behind your desires? Let's ignite a spark in one another that will illuminate the world. The Spark with your host Stephanie James starts now.
2: Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James, and this is Igniting the Spark. We have taken the spark and we are igniting it in this new show here on MindBodySpirit.fm. So I hope that you listeners are just in a good place as you're hearing this. And if you're not, just pause for a moment. You know, we forget that it only takes a moment. Take a deep breath. Put your hands on your heart. Breathe into your heart space close your eyes unless you're driving and just doing that little bit of a pause in our day. It's like a reset. It's a pattern interrupt. And so it can really help us get back on track. Well, I have a treat for you today. I am joined by Suzanne Kohlberg. She's an author and coach who helps overgivers and people pleasers learn to set boundaries and say no without feeling mean. Suzanne's known for her straight talking and her wacky t-shirts, which I want to chat with her about. She lives in Sydney, Australia with her husband and two awesome children. I love that. Welcome to Igniting the Spark, Suzanne.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. And
2: I'm excited to talk about your new book. Uh, I want to get a little history about you first, but we are going to be talking about this great book. The Beginning is Shit, an unapologetic weight loss memoir. Such a great title. First of all, Suzanne, tell me a little bit just about your journey. First, what did you decide to write this book? What made you decide
3: to write it? What made me decide to write the book was on my own weight journey, I was obsessed with before and after stories, like obsessed. I would read them the way I used to eat chocolate. (laughs) But I never found a story quite like mine. Almost all of them were invariably before my life was terrible and after my life was amazing, like some Disney princess style kind of thing. And I was always like wondering, like, what happened after the after? Like, so I was like, surely I can't be the only one whose weight has gone up and down and up and down. And as the listeners hear that, a lot of people nod along and I'm like, I'm not talking 10, 20 kilos um, are you guys talking pounds? I'm not talking 20 or 40 pounds. I'm talking a hundred pounds or more losses and mm-hmm. regains. So I decided that I would just have to write the book myself. And so I did. <laughs> well, and tell us about your own journey then. So I'm the youngest of four. I came along 10 years after the next sister up for me. So I was the surprise. <laughs> and so when I was very young, um, when I was four, my oldest sister who was, she would have been like 21 at the time, got married. So she had all of us sisters and myself as the, I was the flower girl, my older sister were the bridesmaids. And so we had these dresses made. And when the seamstress, is that what you call them? Mm -hmm. Seamstress dressmaker was fitting us for the dresses. I kind of had just like sucked my belly in. Like I'd always seen my mum and sisters do when they were trying stuff on. The fact that she didn't catch it amazes me to this day. And nobody was paying attention to me because they were going about style and flowers and whatever. So when the dress came back, it didn't fit. Like not even remotely. Mm-hmm. And my mum was like, that's it. We're going on a diet. I didn't even know what a diet was. I was four. I was like, okay, what does this mean? <laughs> and that started like from age four through to when I moved out at 18. We'd start our diet as a family on Monday, clean out the pantry have all this, the healthy foods, and then by Thursday, Friday, quit spectacularly and eat all the stuff all weekend to, to start again. And that was just our lives. And it's funny to this day, like I'm close to 40 now and have been out of home for like, yeah, 20 years. My dad still does that, talks to me about his diet. He's starting on a Monday. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's such, it becomes such a way of being, it becomes a lifestyle. It becomes, you know, the way that you are. And I just reached a point where I was like, I can't do this to myself anymore. Like there's the physical toll on your body of losing and regaining, you know, yo-yo dieting. But more than that, that what I think a lot of people don't talk about is the mental and emotional toll on your body. The way that you speak to yourself, your inner dialogue, that was what I was most done with. And so, yeah, when I had my children of my own, for me, was really the the trigger to be like, I don't want this lifestyle for them. So I need to literally sort this out now.
2: Yes. Wow. So, because I was just going to ask you, what was the catalyst? You know, what was it where you said enough? So, what did you do? How did you break this family
3: habit? So, it's, I, I talk about it in the book. So, basically, when I had my second child, I had a cesarean because I ended up with a complicated cesarean with my first. So, I ended up with a planned cesarean. And most people would be, you know, thinking about meeting their baby and excited and, or maybe a bit nervous, but, you know, focus on the upcoming addition to the family. And all I was thinking about was my weight. I was like, if I fall off this table, are they going to be able to get me up off the floor? Are they even going to be able to get the spinal in? Like all this stuff. And I was the biggest I'd ever been. The scales at home wouldn't weigh me anymore. They only weigh to 150 kilos, which is 330 pounds. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't diet again because as all the diets are going through my head, I'm like, I could do this and, you know, lose 5, 10 kilos really easy and I could do it. And I was like, no, this is enough. So that was, you know, the moment then. And people often ask, you know, pivotal moments and things. There really isn't just one. There's a collection of them. And even with any decision, any goal that you go after in life, it, I don't believe there's just one because you remake the decision every time you have a slip up or a backslide or a backtrack or, or what have you. So from there, I decided that I wasn't going to diet again, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I kind of flailed around for about a year. But then when my then youngest was getting close to being able to walk, I realized I was going to have two children, like, cause my oldest was not quite two years older. And my husband was flying fly out. And I was like, I can't keep up with him. like literally and physically, I'm actually going to have to do something. And I'd injured my back. That was a whole other story in a personal training <laughs> incident. And I was looking at needing spinal fusion surgery. And I remember seeing the neurosurgeon who of all the medical doctors I've seen, a lot of them weren't kind about my size, but he was just very matter of fact. He was not rude. He was like, it will be a difficult surgery given the size of your body. Like, just, I can't explain it. I didn't feel shamed. I didn't feel guilted. I just felt like, you know, this was an honest assessment. He said, if you drop some weight, there's a 50% chance you won't even need it. Like, and I was like, oh, so that wasn't like, uh, it was another catalyst. It was another thing. And I was like, okay. So over that time, that year where I say, I was kind of like, I'm not dieting, but then what? I was looking into mindset and I was exploring some things and, you know, really going after the thing of, if you're not physically hungry, why are you turning to food? Because food isn't going to solve it. And I think in the past or the other times I'd lost weight, I just replaced overeating with something else over shopping, um, over exercising, which people laugh at, but that's how I'd injured my back in the first place. So like what, what drives us to avoid the void by over consuming in some way And, you know, what, what is it about feeling bad, like (laughs) actually allowing yourself to feel bad for a moment rather than avoid feeling bad by eating and spending and doing all these other things. So that's kind of the journey that I went on.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really resonate with that whole thing. I feel like, you know, as a psychotherapist, I definitely talk to my clients about this thing of where we just want a fix. And I love, if you know, Pema Chodron. she's a American Buddhist nun. And I love she talks about the Shempa or the Shempo rising. And that is that urge that we want to fix. And so we do it by eating or shopping or gambling or having sex, whatever it is to not feel it. And as it sounds like you well know Part of it is just to let it come up and just feel it. What we're afraid of feeling is so much less than all the energy we're putting into distracting ourselves. And then it's still lying and wait.
3: Yes. Yes. That's such an apt description. The other thing that comes to mind for me is kind of like a wave, a wave will, you know, go forward and then retreat. But then if we avoid it, then we end up with a tsunami and we are so afraid of the tsunami that it comes as a result of us avoiding it from the day-to-day, like trying to put a cap on it. So it's like, or or the other example that really resonates is is holding a beach ball underwater. If you get a beach ball and you push it down, you can hold it for a little bit, but eventually your arms get really tired and the more you force it and your whole body starts to shake and eventually you let go and it like shoots out of the water and hits you in the face. That's kind of what it feels like.
2: (laughs) Totally. Absolutely. I I just have to laugh because my fiance uses that example all the time. And so it's so true. And so what was your experience when you started opening up and allowing yourself to be with what was there instead of trying to fix it?
3: It was honestly really uncomfortable. Like I think, and that's what I I tried to capture in the book. And I I talk about with my clients now, when we are avoiding our feelings or when we're feeling really low I don't want to say depressed because like that's a, a a diagnosis but you know sad guilty ashamed all of these like really inward feeling emotions when we start to process and allow those in and to experience them sometimes or in my experience a lot of my clients things like anger will surface because like why wasn't I taught this as a child why why has nobody told me that this is what's happened anger, you know, resentment, they can be very outwardly expressed emotions. So in the beginning, it can kind of look and feel like it's worse before it's better. Because if you're doing very inwardly directed things, and you're feeling low and guilty and shame, other people don't see that. So like, your husband, your partner, your people in your family—they might get an inkling that you're not like all that you could be, but they don't know how bad it is because it's all inside. So when you start to kind of express it and it comes out a bit, they're like, "What on? What's happening here?" I remember my husband more than once just like, "Just eat a chocolate, woman." Like he he meant it well, but he'd like, "You're just, just you know," because he couldn't cope with it either. But then once that was, it's another phase, and once that was moved through. It, it didn't hang out long. But I think so many of us start to have that outwardly expressed thing and we, we fear that and well, what if this goes and go away? So let me go back to the inwardly expressed things, especially um, I found as a mother because I was, my husband was fly in, fly out, had two very young children. It's not it's not their fault. It's actually not, it's no one's fault. It's <laughs> My responsibility for my emotions, but like being angry at them, it was hard to deal with. So then I could go and eat something and I feel guilty at myself. And I was much more comfortable with that. So, you know, sitting with that anger and sitting with that frustration to this day, like they're older now, but I'm very recently, I had a moment that was not my finest. And my seven-year-old said to me afterwards, he's like, I'm really sorry that I made you mad. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> I'm always responsible for my feelings. Like if it came across and I said something like you make me mad, you know, you, you do when you go, you know, but that is on me. And he was, we just, it was such a, afterwards, such a great experience for everybody involved. But I think beforehand, you know, we internalize other people's stuff and, and then make it our own. And it was like, no, this is, this is on me. Um, And then it's like, where well, am I not looking after myself that I'm exploding about little things like homework, not being done or shoes, not in the right spot. Cause it's never the presenting thing most of the time.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. The pre- the presenting thing is like a symptom, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's what lies underneath. And so what a cool moment, you know, what an amazing, beautiful teaching moment to come back because I I found too, with my children, if I would say to them, wow, I just totally messed up or I made a mistake. And then we talk about it. Th- those are the learning moments because kids automatically already have us on a pedestal as parents, yeah. you know, and see us kind of like, oh, they, you know, they don't do anything wrong. And so, what a great, great teaching moment to be able to say, This isn't you, you can't make me mad. I own my feelings, and this is the situation that created my feelings I mean that's just so cool, Suzanne
3: well, Thank you, <laughs> yeah, no,
2: I love hearing that because i I just think it's really important you know to share those kind of things with the listeners because and you're exactly right, you know we 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 hear people. If we think, oh, my gosh, if that person's raising their voice or they're acting out the external expression of emotions is hard for people to handle either themselves expressing it or to be around it at times. And if we turn it inwards, then we're creating a state within us that literally it's dis-ease in the body or creating disease the longer we repress it. So the importance of learning like, yeah, we can express our anger, our shame, our sadness in ways that we're not taking it out on other people. Yes. So to externalize it doesn't mean zero to 100 that, you know, if I'm going to express my anger now, it doesn't mean I'm going to go yell at my fiance. What it means is I can say to him, I am really angry right now, and I need to go take a timeout. Yes. I need to go cool out so that when I come back, we can just talk about this.
3: And I think sometimes that framing is so important. Like very recently I had some muck around with the phone company and, you know, everyone rolls their eyes and goes, oh yeah, the phone company. And I remember the person (laughs) I spoke to and I was, look, before I start, I am really angry at this situation. I'm not angry at you. So I apologize if I sound terse or if, you know, something comes up, but this has been going on for quite some time. And I'm hoping today that we can get this resolved. And they were like, okay, that's awesome. And, you know, I just think that naming of the thing rather than pretending, oh, it's okay, when it's not, but also just yelling at them. I used to work in a call centre and it would be so funny when people would say to me, oh, I have to wait so long to talk to you and they'd start their tirade. And I'd be like, well, every person's going to yell at me for five minutes. How many more people could I talk to today if we just went straight to the point? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (gasps)
2: <gasps> it's so good.: Well, and so with with your husband and with you know your family, it sounds like you've been able to just be more authentically who you are.: Yes, and that it's been okay.
3: And it has yeah, it's been okay. There are moments, like there are always moments with everything. I remember very early on because my husband and I've been together since I was a teenager and so he's seen my weight up and down and up and down. And in this last iteration, like the one that lasted, when I said to him, like, I want you to support me. He's like, yep, okay, got it. I could sense the nascent eye roll. I could sense the how long is it going to last this time? So for anyone who's listening, who's like, you know, I've been on this journey, like, I, you know, I know what it's like. My advice would be to actually make sure that they're paying attention. Like I, I always talk to my husband, he's like playing the Xbox or something. And then later on, I'm like, but you said you'd support me. So like, is this a good time to have this conversation? Not assume as I'm walking down the hallway and he's playing Xbox, can you can support me? Okay. <laughs> and also, what do you mean by support? Because not long after that conversation, we are at the supermarket. We have these chocolate biscuits here. You guys might call them cookies. I always get confused. Um, they're called Tim Tams. They're Australian classic. And I picked them up and he, not maliciously, but he just kind of like slapped them out of my hand. And I looked at him and I picked up two packets. I was like, tell me what to do. And I ate like every single one. And then I'm like crying going, you said you'd support me. And he's like, well, I tried to get you not to buy the biscuits. <laughs> so it was like this moment of clarity is like, what did I want? I'm like, well, what I wanted was for you to give me a hug and tell me I could do this. Like, that's what support meant for me. Whereas support to him was like, just don't let her eat the biscuits. So it's like having the discussion with the people in your life. First of all, do they have the capacity to help you, you know, in this journey? Cause they may not. And if they do, what does it look like for you? Instead of just assuming that they will know what you want, because there's the me who he calls now that he's not, Fly in, fly out on the way home from work. Like, do we need anything? he's like, no, no, I'm fine. And there's me a couple of hours later, like, who? Why didn't you buy snacks? So it's like that must be very difficult to live with at times.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like how he's. I'm sure. Like, how do I win this? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, you know, I, I I really appreciate what you're saying because it's something I I speak to my couples about a lot. We cannot assume that our partners, you know, our husbands. Our wives can read our minds. And so that communication piece is so important. And exactly what you just said about asking your partner is this a good time when you want to talk about one of these important topics? It's so essential because we want our partners to show up and be emotionally present. And if they're tired or they're in the middle of playing Xbox or whatever they do, You know, if they're distracted, they're not going to be able to show up in the capacity that we're hoping for. So I love that. You know, and the other thing that I encourage and invite people to say too, Suzanne, is, you know, I'd like to connect with you instead of we need to
3: talk because
2: who said we need to talk? Our parents when we were in trouble.
3: So as I I hear that saying, I could just feel my nervous system go into immediate dysregulation. We need to talk. What have I done? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs)
2: So And I love that. So when we're on these kind of journeys that you're talking about, I mean, this, and we're going to talk more about this after the break, but when it's these lifelong journeys, it's not just, oh, you made one decision and now your life is totally different. It's like, this is something I imagine we need ongoing support, excuse me, ongoing support from our partners. And so having those conversations, not anticipating they can read your mind about what you want, but saying, yeah, this is the kind of support that would be really helpful for me. And to be able to articulate that on an ongoing basis, because I imagine too, the way you need to be supported doesn't always show up in the same way.
3: hundred percent. Yes.
2: Well, this is such an awesome conversation. I'm just loving chatting with you. We're going to take a really quick break and then I am going to be back with suzanne and we will be continuing to ignite the spark join us in a moment
0: have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments heal traumas and change your life you still feel as if you don't belong there is a reason and a solution for this join award-winning actor comedian and best-selling author kyle cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org/slash thrive.
2: Welcome back to the Spark. I am here with the author of this awesome book, The Beginning is Shit an unapologetic weight loss memoir. I'm here with Suzanne Kohlberg. Suzanne, thank you for coming back. So fun to talk to you. Thank you. This has been fabulous so far. Looking forward to the second half. Yeah. So, so again, I know that you're coaching people and helping them with their journeys. And I imagine that spills over into other challenges. You led to this in the beginning of the interview that, it's really what's underneath the behavior, right? So it's it's what the fix is all about. What's underneath it is what needs yes. to be healed or taken care of. So share, if you will, with us a little bit about that part of the journey for you.
3: So what it all boiled down to is that as the premier people pleaser, that's why I coach people pleasers now, I realized that, I I didn't even know what I wanted. Like once I'd done the basic things that I'd set out to do in life, I'd got married, I had the house, I had the kids. Like it was like, okay, all these things are done. I never really paused to say like, now what? What I did like be very proud of is that I would be the person. Like I would drop everything. You need me to help move move house tomorrow at 6am? I'd be there, bad back and all. You know, you need something baked for some sale or whatever? Like let's fire up the oven. You need groceries, I will pack my two kids into the car and go to the supermarket at 9 o'clock at night. Like, just be the yes person. And what I realized, as I said, afterward, well, they say, life's lived forward and understood backward, Mm. is I always thought I just needed to find the right plan. Like, if I found the right diet, the right plan, the right thing, then I would be fixed. Like, it wasn't broken, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. And what would happen is I'd find a plan and I'd be like, this is going to be the thing. And I would go and buy all the fancy ingredients and I'd go to the expensive supermarket and I'd clean out the pantry and I'd join the gym and I'd always buy all the equipment. And then something would happen. Like someone would be like, could you just like, I need help to move house tomorrow. Like this legitimately happened, you know, at 6am. Like, sure. So I ditch my plans to go and help others and the healthy food would be wilting in the fridge and i just grab cheap and cheerful. Like, let's just go drive through, take away on the way home. Or the gym membership would go unused or the treadmill would become like the expensive clothes horse rather than, you know, because I didn't have time legitimately. So the answer never was finding the right plan because basically they all work if you work them. But the the problem was being able to say no, being able to say like, no, as in, the end sentence or not right now or let me get back to you or volunteer how is the best way that I could serve. So if you're like, hey, Suzanne, can you help me move house tomorrow at 6? It could be like, well, I'm available Sunday at 12. Oh, but I need you tomorrow at 6 because the movers are coming. Like being able to be like, well, that's not my, like now, many years later, your inability to be organised is not my problem. (laughs) Said with love. But at the time it'd be like, oh, well, you know, these people are relying on me or, you know, or doing things I didn't even actually even want to do. Like, would you come to my Tupperware party? And it's like, I don't even like plastic. Sure, I'll be there. But <laughs> because you're so afraid that people won't ask you again or they'll make it mean something about you or whatever, or let's go to the movies and watch this horror film. Okay, I can't stand horror. But, you know, instead, like, no doesn't have to be the ending no can be the beginning thank you so much for thinking of me I don't actually do horror is there anything else showing that you want to see oh great because we've all had that experience where we've made a friendship with someone we've assumed because we've said hey do you want to see this and they've said yes and then five years later you find out they don't like horror or they don't drink coffee or whatever else it is and you're like even more disconnected than if they'd just been honest in the beginning so I think sometimes as people pleasing we don't realize we are manipulating because we're manipulating how we are received or how people see us. And then we have to remember who we had what story with. And that gets so exhausting. No wonder we stay up late watching Netflix and eating chips. Exactly.
2: Yeah, I I think that what you're saying, is there's so many essential messages in this. And that when we're, it's almost like toxic, yes, people, you know, it becomes so detrimental to who we are. Do you find in the people that you're coaching and with your own experience that when we say yes, it's when we don't want to, as you're talking about, it's because we're not valuing ourselves?
3: Oh, a hundred percent. I came across a term recently. I don't know who to credit to, but it's so true. They referred to people pleasers as the exploding doormats. And I was like, I'd always said, yes, I'm a doormat. Like, well, I was a doormat, but you get to a point like the resentment in the beginning, you might not even be aware of it, but then the seed is there and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you just lose it. And usually the person or the people that you lose it at is your children or your partner or something like it's some little thing. Hence my comment about the shoes or whatever. And it's just like, now I used to think that there was something wrong because I still did that. And now it's like, oh, this is a sign, like the traffic lights. Like we've hit a red light here when this is happening. Backtrack. It's just these are the, the things for me that I'm not like taking care of myself or I'm not making myself a priority and this is my work. And it used to come out always, you know, with eating or with shopping or with whatever, like these avoidance behaviours. So when we don't feel our feelings because we shove them down, when we stop shoving them down, we're going to start feeling them again. So it can feel more volatile in the beginning or more vulnerable mm-hmm. because these feelings that we haven't allowed ourselves to feel come to surface. I don't even know how to process this. Like I am just so mad. Normally, you know, next thing, automatic hand syndrome kicked in and you're in the pantry and you're like, how did this even happen? Or you've added all this stuff to your cart and the Amazon Prime person's turning up and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, there's all that stuff I ordered when I was really like, whatever it is. So a lot of the work I do with people is, you know, tracking that back to, you know, which which version of you is that? Because often, you know, the current day you isn't the one who's reacting to this. It's a younger or earlier version of you. And if you start going down the path again, it doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that you haven't done any work because we can tend to discount it. Like I should know better. and It just compounds this whole situation. But it's like, oh, okay. so. Where am I not prioritizing myself and what needs to change here so that, you know, we don't continue down this path again. Well, and that's
2: really it. It's how do we make ourselves a priority in our own lives and let go of this preconditioned message that it's selfish somehow?
3: Yes. Self-care, it gets, you know, self-first isn't selfish. Like the airplanes, they have it going on because if you are passed out in the aisle, you can't help anyone. And it's the same with your day-to-day things. Like people like, I don't have time to exercise or I don't have time to cook healthy meals or I don't have time to do this. But if you don't make that time, then something else will happen like a, you know down the line and that's confronting, but it is. But also if you have children or whatever, what are you modeling to them? I remember when I very first joined the gym, um, I had to put my children in the crèche because I had no family nearby and my husband was away. So I, I took them to the creation. They're sad little faces and they're crying. And I just nearly turned around and went home. And I was like, no, this will be good for them. <laughs> and it wasn't long until they actually started to enjoy it. And then not that long ago with COVID, when we had the lockdowns, like everyone said, you know, lockdowns are great for introverts. I'm like, no, we want to be alone. Like, yes, I love my family, but like not 24-7. And we had quite stringent lockdowns here in Australia. We weren't allowed more than five kilometres from our front door. And it was all this palaver. And I remember my kids looking at each other going, Mummy needs to go to the gym <laughs> so, because they've gotten used to when I do that and I feel better, then I'm so much more pleasant to be around. But there is that interim period. It's kind of like if you, the gym example is such a great one. If you go to the gym and you look at the um, weights and you want to do these dumbbell curves and you go and pick up the big ones, you're not going to be able to curl that initially. You've got to start down the other end with the lower weight and lower reps and build your way up. So often we come across someone, we hear them speak or someone who has really good boundaries and someone who's able to say no, and we're like, okay, I'm going to do that. And it doesn't work out so well. And it's like, we've pendulumed from being this doormat to being the explosion. And it's like finding these small ways that, you know, yes, I'm going to get there, but I've got to start where I am right now.
2: Oh my gosh, Suzanne, thank you so much for saying that. I think it's such a setup when we're wanting to do behavior change. And we know, you know, we've had like the epiphany. We've had the aha moment. We're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be the yes person. And you're exactly right. We swing the pendulum so far to the other side that the behavior change doesn't stick. So it really is like building a muscle. So I know in the book, Atomic Habits, he really speaks to that. It's the little bitty habit that we cultivate every day. So it's not that you just start saying no, no, no to everyone that says anything. It's like, first of all, how do I practice self-care? How do I start showing up for myself in the morning? Even if you start with just taking 10 minutes is what I tell my clients, you know, you just begin that practice and you can expand it from there. And then, like you said, then you get to a point and you can start the being able to articulate a no. No in bigger capacities in your life. You can start saying no in a way where, okay, I've practiced this. I feel more comfortable with this. And so it's not just carte blanche. I'm actually going to think about it, take it in. And then I can articulate back to that person. Like you said, yeah, this isn't going to work for me today. I can help you move Sunday at noon. That's, that's a good window for me. And if it doesn't work, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. This is just not going to work for me.
3: Yeah. And it, as you, it's the reps, and, I, and I, one thing I say to my clients is that boundaries are the easiest with people who haven't come into your world yet. So like your partner, your parents, your immediate family, friendship circle, they have grown accustomed to a certain version of you. So they are often the hardest to set those boundaries with. So if you have a look at you know, what you're going to, so like maybe an example, I don't know over there, but over here, the school has the fundraiser where you sell chocolates and they're like $4 a box and they send your kids home with 50 boxes. And I'm like, great, there's $200 chocolate we're going to eat. Like, <laughs> I don't let my kids go door knocking. I don't know a lot of people. And everyone else I do know has kids at the same school. So they've got their own 50 boxes to sell. So I'm like, okay, what's the school wanting here? They're raising money. So if I sell $200, they're going to maybe get 20 because they only get a percentage so i'm like i speak to the school i'm like i'm not available to bring home the school the chocolate boxes here's 50 dollars because it's going to save me 150 because you know i'm going to buy them all anyway they get a pure donation they're happy i'm happy the end or same something else like if it's the bake sale like i'm not available to bake the cakes or whatever this year but i can donate you know maybe you can donate money or maybe on the day you could turn up and be the person who sells them or, or whatever but the thing is, it's looking at what are you available for? Because like there's some listeners, I'm sure listening, who love to bake the things or sell the chocolates. And if that's you, great. But it's like working out. And that's the other thing. When you work with somebody on your boundaries, it's not a prescription because everybody's boundaries are going to be different. Like what what lights me up? To you, you might be like, oh, no thanks. And vice versa. So it's like looking at what are the things that, I ha- that make me feel my gut clench or make me feel, oh, I'm screaming no inside. And how can I make a path to start with people not close to me and go, oh, okay. Like say, this is going to sound so dumb, but when you go to like the supermarket or the pharmacy here and they say, would you like a bag with that? Like, even if I didn't, I'd just be like, yes, because I couldn't say no to anything. So something like, oh, no, thank you. Like I've brought my own or something. It's like, oh, I managed. Or if you order something and they try and do the upsell, which you understand it's part of their thing. It's like, oh, I don't want them to feel bad. So yes, I'll have fries and corn and all this other stuff I don't really want. So it's like, no, thanks. And just celebrating each time that you do that. And each time it gets a little bit easier until, you know, you don't even think about it.
2: So great. Again, those little small steps that build to being able to say no to more and more and more. And I love it. Practicing with someone or people that you don't know first, you're exactly right. You know, oftentimes it's like we get pigeonholed. I call it with our family, you know, and you might've had the experience, Suzanne, like you go back to visit your parents and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, I feel 16 again, for some reason, you know, it is just those family dynamics where they perceive us at a certain point. And so we all kind of fall back into those roles. So how do you encourage people or what, what do you say to people that are like, okay, I can do it now with strangers or outsiders. How do I start cultivating or building this muscle with my family?
3: The way I say about it with family is I like to use the traffic light analogy. A green light is what you, you would ideally like because all of us, we like things to be smooth and we like things to be easy. And so many of my clients say, I just say yes to keep the peace. And it's like, my question then is externally, you're keeping the peace, but what happens inside? Like we're starting this war inside, which often, you know, is, is to our detriment. So, you know, green, so a perfect example is I, I spoke about in the book, I went to medical school, I was going to be my doc, a doctor with my parents' pride and joy. And I left and now I'm a coach and And they they still don't quite get it. So they're like, well, you don't have like a nine to five. Not that a doctor does anyway, but anywho. So they can just like, I can just ring you at any time. And the thing is, if I'm in session, like right now we're recording this radio show, my phone is on silent. It won't disrupt me. But then what would happen is they would just keep ringing. So I'd get off a call or a session or something. I'd see 10 missed calls. I'd be like, what's happened? Ringing back, expecting like some drama to have gone down. And they're like, oh, no, well we're just ringing, you know, and, and to, to try and get you. So I was like, well, what would the green light be for me? Like, perfect scenario. Like, I'm not saying don't call me. Like, I don't want to speak to my family. But I was like, could you text me and say, hey, I um, would love to chat to you today. Let me know your available times. And then I can call you when we work this out. And to you, your green light makes perfect sense. You're like, okay, that seems reasonable. And you explain it. And they're like, okay. and then. It doesn't happen. And some of us, this, this is where many of us can go wrong. We can throw it out. And it's like, this is where we need to remind. So we're having an orange light situation. It's like, you know, slow down, reevaluate, reconnect, also check it works for them. Cause like if your parents can't text, this isn't going to work. Like I wouldn't say this to my husband's grandmother cause she doesn't know how to text. So that wouldn't work. So like checking and reminding and, and just, you know, re-establishing the boundary a couple of times and not making it mean that they don't care or they don't respect, like not noticing the story that comes up. Is it possible that they just forgot? Is it possible that they were really excited? Like, is it possible something else? But then also noticing that if it continues to happen, your response to it, like if I see 10 missed calls and assume that the worst, that's on me because this is their behavior. That's some work I need to do on my stuff, but I don't need to make it mean anything about that as well. So now, thankfully, my mum's got a down pat 100%. My dad, he's about 80% of the time. Sometimes he forgets because something exciting's happened or he want to see how the kids are. But it's kind of like, you know, making sure that it is a win-win for both because the thing is if I say, well, just don't call me, then they're going to assume that I don't want to hear from them and all this stuff can go down pat. So it's getting really clear. On communicating and also reestablishing it and seeing if it's a win-win. Is it working for both of you? Because sometimes your green light in your head in practice is like, well, that was a terrible idea.
2: <laughs> and I think again, like you're, like I'm hearing you say, it's practice. So it's practice, not the first time perfect. It it may never be perfect, and you keep practicing. You keep communicating. It reminds me really briefly of when I first moved back to town. I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and when I moved back here after being gone for almost 20 years, my mother lives six blocks away, and my grandfather lived literally like four blocks away from from where I am, and she would say to me, you need to go see your grandpa, and I would say, I'm 45 years old. Don't tell me what I need to do. You know, and I I have to retract that because I never said that in that way. But I would always get that feeling inside Mm. when she would say that, like, oh, don't tell me what to do. That little rebel in me, you know, the teenager in me. And so when that changed was like what you're talking about, I was able to articulate, mom, I need to let you know that when you say you need to go see your grandpa, that I get I start getting anxious and it makes me really feel nervous and this pressure. And so if you could just say to me, you know, Stephanie, I would love for you to go see your grandpa. It would mean a lot to me and express your feelings around it. It would change everything. So sometimes it's just a word or two that we're asking to have things changed that then create for me, it was, then it became an option.
3: And how you explain that, like, this is how it feels like in my body. So for me, it's, Way different example, but the feeling kind of, I felt it as you were speaking. I'm absolutely petrified of spiders. Like, I've done all sorts of things, but like, it's just not a happening thing. And so, if I'm driving and one of my kids screams, like, I'm really worried I'm just going to run off the road. So, I'm like, if you see a spider, I know it's scary for you, but can you calmly as possible just tell me to pull over? Like, <laughs> wherever it is, I will move the car over. But if you scream spider when I'm in the middle of the highway, you know, this is an unsafe situation. So there's some boundaries, which is, you know, our preference, but there's also some boundaries that can, you know, be a safety type thing. And for us, that is one of them. Another one too is them bickering when I'm in the traffic, because I live in Sydney, there's a lot of traffic here. And I'm like, I understand that she's breathing your air or he's looking at your thing or like, you know, like to them, it's a big deal to me. It's like, seriously, but can we just table this until we get home? Because, you know, you see stories of people who turn around to deal with the kids or whatever, and that's how something happens. So like, this is a safety situation here. It's not just, you know, my preference.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So boundaries in all kinds of areas I'm hearing, it's so important. And I love that you teach people this, you know, we're we're almost getting down to the end of our interview. I can't believe it's gone so fast because there's so much more I want to chat with you about. For people that are curious though, what does the title of this book mean and why is the beginning shite?
3: (laughs) So there was a twofold reason to that. The very first one was when I was starting to write it, I got some advice from somebody who'd written books and they said, whatever you do, don't edit it or you'll never finish it. Like write the the book the entire way through and then go back and edit it. That was the best advice I'd ever heard because being, you know, slightly perfectionistic tendencies myself, So that's exactly how I did it. So I wrote it from the beginning to the end. And then when I started reading it back, I I read it through the first time when I went to edit it. My friend was like, because I I had no working title. Actually, the working title was My Body, My Prison, because it was about my weight stuff. She was like, what do you think? I'm like, oh, the beginning is shit. Is in, like, I wasn't a very good writer (laughs) (laughs) at the beginning, but then it got better as as I wrote, you know, which, which makes sense. But also too it mirrors when we go to try a a new habit or when we try and change something often the beginning is shit because we have to go into that level of discomfort and discomfort is the currency of change we're not going to want to say no we're not going to want to examine what's going on in our mind i just want to buy stuff and not feel so you know the beginning like the same back to the gym workout if you go and lift those weights that you're going to be tearing muscle fibers it's going to be you know some discomfort there's a difference between discomfort and pain But it's the beginning of the journey is, you know, often the hardest step before you start getting the momentum when it's rolling.
2: Yeah, perfect. I love the title. I think it's so great. And it's so true. It's so true that the beginning can be very difficult. And that's the beautiful thread, golden thread I'm hearing through your entire message is that we just continue to work to cultivate these muscles, to build these muscles, to be able to have boundaries, to be able to have a relationship with ourselves to be able to express the emotions that are within us in ways that are happy and not happy, but healthy. And so, as we're getting ready to wrap up, how can people first, Suzanne, get a hold of you?
3: Best place to find me is my website, suzannekohlberg.com. It's C-U-L-B-E-R-G. Very interesting spelling. When you head to my website, I've got what's called newsletter. If you click on that and pop your email address in, send me any emails. I'm the boundaries person. I'll be very clear. I don't respond to DMs like on Facebook or Instagram. That's not me, but I will email you seven ways to Sunday. And the reason I have that is I have no email on my phone taken all off. So everything's on the computer and it's just a boundary for me. So I... Practice what I preach, and I love people emailing me and saying, you know, what they got from this interview. I'd love to hear it.
2: Yeah, wonderful. And Suzanne, I have to say, my gosh, you know, you live obviously what you are talking about here. You're just—I wish people could see you. People are going to hear this podcast and and not be able to to see you, but you're just so like luminous and lit up and you know, obviously this, what, what you have cultivated in your own life is working.
3: Well, thank you. Yes. I'm, I'm very passionate about this and you still have moments. So my next book, you have the sneak peek. I haven't written it yet. It's coming. Yeah. It's the messy middle. So I've got the beginning of shit. <laughs> And then the messy middle, because I think sometimes we think we see people have a journey and we think, well, that's it. That's the end. And that's like the Disney princess version. And then there's like, oh, then there's part two, you know, like frozen two, when we discover this other thing. So it's kind of like the messy middle it's, but it does get easier, but then other things come up and using their skills in other areas of your life. So yes. Thank you so Perfect. much.
2: Perfect, Perfect.
3: That's so beautiful. I
2: love it. I always say, if I had a bumper sticker, it would be life is messy. And if we can just embrace that part, life gets so much easier. So Suzanne, what is, as we're wrapping up too, the essential message, you want to make sure that you're leaving with the listeners.
3: It's a quote from Sophia Bush and it changed my life when I heard it. It's like, you can be a masterpiece and a work in progress at the same time. So often we, when we try to make changes and we can fall into a not good enough thing like mindset or you know, when I get there, things will be better. When I lose weight, when I make the money, when I meet the man. And it's like you, you're you a masterpiece now and a work in progress, like your best gets to get better. So whatever it is that you're trying to you know change or sculpt or create a reminder to acknowledge what the good that you already have now is because otherwise we end up on this perpetually unsatisfied thing, thinking the next thing is the thing that will make us feel better, but you can feel better in, in any moment. So yeah. Masterpiece and work of progress at the same time. Beautiful. Love it.
2: Love this. Get the book. The beginning is shit. An unapologetic weight loss memoir with Suzanne Kohlberg excited excited to share this with the audience thank you so much suzanne for being here
3: thank you so much for having me stephanie
2: and join us again boy make sure you're subscribing so you get um, so you continue to get amazing shows like this also i just want to remind listeners right now you can still see my first film When sparks ignite, it's playing right now on Plex Network on the More You channel. So check the More You channel for show times and my book, *Becoming Fierce*, available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all fine bookstores. Really helping you to embrace what is passionate and purposeful within you, so you can live your life as a fully lit up expression of the authentic you. All right. Thanks so much for being here. This has been the spark igniting your best life. You have been listening to igniting the spark with Stephanie James. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast platforms. Make sure you subscribe and receive every episode. For more information about this show, my books, films, and events, go to stephaniejames.world and ignite your best life.
0: Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave.